Welcome to You Talking with Greg. Uh, my guest today is Christopher Maestro Pietro. Do I say that? Capture that right? Maestro Pietro. Maestro Pietro. Sorry about that. As, a, as somebody else who has a horrible blast name that gets mangled all the time, at least I can empathize. <laughs> uh, we're kindred spirits in that respect, Greg. <laughs> Amen. Well, it's a really joy to have you here. In fact, we've been uh, having a fun conversation up to this point. Uh, I want to welcome you here. And uh, we have all sorts of different things to, to talk about. But first, just welcome and thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. It was a really kind invitation um, to come and chat with you here on your podcast. It really was. And I really appreciate it. Um, it was a, it was a lot of fun to do. We, so just where we are in time right now, we've just finished doing the uh, the elusive eye, the 12, 12 part, 13 part. Yep, yep. I've lost track series. Uh, the elusive <laughs> 12 plus eye. one. We have 13 parts coming out one. Think one yet on Thursday. <laughs> so we've just finished the 12 part series. It went awfully fast, actually, for the, for, the for the length and volume. It did seem to kind of speed by. Anyway, that was that was really a, a pleasure uh, and an honor to do that with uh, with you and John, Greg. So thank you for that as well. You were remarkably accommodating of me in that process as we waded through it together. Hmm. I, I wouldn't say I felt that particularly what I did feel. I was actually, I was, I want you to know, I was genuinely, and I think at this show, but I want you to know this um, deeply. I was really moved by the last two um, presentations that you, uh, the last two. Uh, so Chris takes the, the last two and he are, articulates the angle from a existential Kierkegaardian uh, perspective and just one note after another captured my attention and just resonated with me very, very deeply. So uh, it was really, it was an honor to watch that and it was moving to feel that. Um, and I felt a deep resonance with a cognitive science, clinical existential interface on this very, very tricky concept. And you, it just brought the uh, discussion to a real philosophical embodied existential head. And I just deeply appreciated that uh, contribution. It was really remarkable. Oh, thank you, Greg. That's very kind. Thank you for saying that very much, very much. Yeah. I mean, it was embarrassment of riches, that uh, series, because Seriously. there's so much, you know, it's like you pull on any one of those threads. Um, every five minutes could have unspooled itself into yet another hour, right? That the, just the, 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 the sort of the, even the tangential richness um, of those sessions is enough to be very whelming. And um and that in and of itself makes it made it a very interesting exercise, right? Because it's an exercise of constantly expanding the ambit of content under discussion and under the scope of attention, and then having to contract it again so that it remains intelligible. And that constant expanding and contracting of the scope of discussion is um, it's a real challenge. But when when done with a certain degree of attention, it can be um, it can be a really worthwhile challenge. And I felt totally. that that was the case. That was totally my sense. Uh, and yeah, and I think you and I were given that in particular, sort of like, okay, um, because we had a somewhat more narrow band with which we both wanted to expand, but maintain intelligible and maintain the connection. Um, but it did, it did seem to come together uh, quite well. I'm very happy with the, the product. And I really also am, uh, you know, I'm really grateful for John and setting it up and, and initiating this concept of sort of academic dialogos, this, uh, this process of uh, rich dialogue to unfold insight. And uh, it's a real, you know, joy to be a part of that. Cause I really do feel that's a, that's an, a, 
the Zoom world and other changes in society afford us an opportunity, you know, to rediscover perhaps some modes of inquiry and connection uh, that have been lost in traditional academic circles, at least in modernity. And to remember those and rediscover those and reenact those is what I feel sort of like that project is about. And it's a, it's pretty cool to be a part of. It is. Yeah. It's one of the things that makes this whole enterprise deeply attractive, attractive on so many different levels, because it speaks to this, the deep appetition that we're all feeling to somehow get outside of the narrow constricting frame of reference, right? That's sort of, that we've all been indentured to, um, you know, having inherited it right from modernity and it, and it's, and I, and that's why there are so many disaffected people who, uh, have gone to do an undergraduate degree and found that, that all of the things that that they, all of the things that were subject to their intellectual lust ended up being uh, withheld from them in one way or another. And so had to, had to turn and search in other places for it. Um, and, um, and that, I mean, it's, it's such a prevailing problem now that it, it sort of, it is, it is the, it, it has now assumed, right, that that fundamental problem because of its prevalence. It's now just we almost take it as a as a given. Sort that, of the default. It is the yep. default that unfolds, right? That's right. That's right. But it's funny. One thing that I wanted to ask you about is that one of one thing that I found. I mean, John was was certainly the one who pulled me into this world, and um, and I was I was and am still very grateful to him for that. And and since that, I've tried to find the most optimal way to comport the experience of encountering it because I mean it when I say it's an embarrassment of riches and that, um, and that the volume, the sheer volume and variety of what is available. And by what is available, I mean both the content of thought that's being advanced and also the individuals, the variety of different people who are Uh operating within the space is, um, it risks to use John's language risks being combinatorially explosive, right? It, <laughs> yeah, it is totally. really quite something. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. It's such a groundswell. It's such a surge. And, um, there's a, there's a deep appeal to that, of course, but there's also, I find that there's a countervailing instinct to be very cautious about it too, because there mm. is simply so much sort of like being at a, a sumptuous buffet and um, and and your first instinct, most people's first instincts is to want to just be voracious mm. and attack that buffet for all it's worth and to try and stack as many things on that plate as possible. But of course, structuring a proper meal is is an art unto itself and one worth cultivating. Right. Because otherwise <laughs> you get a severe case of indigestion after the fact. And I find that there's, you know, that's mm. a crude analogy, but there's something uh, that here, I think, for yeah. me. Mm-hmm. And so. Um, taking care to curate the experience um, is, I think, a challenge that is an implicit, is, is an implicit part of the experience itself and an implicit nice. part of the virtual environment is the question of personal curation. Yes. And, um, and that to me is as deserving of attention as the actual participation in the dialogues, mm-hmm. right? Because depending on how you curate the participation, the experience will be very different and the learning therein will be very different too, right? And so I totally. found that I found that now it's easier for me to be a little bit more parsimonious about this because, you know, I'm not, I don't, I don't have the breadth, the breadth of, of, I don't have the breadth of possible participation that let you and John and and others have, but nevertheless, 
a certain parsimony I found almost necessary in order to make sure that each experience and each encounter is meaningful unto itself and can sufficiently account for itself and its value and doesn't get drowned out by the sheer, you know, the sheer abundance of it all. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that um, I've, I've talked to a couple of people who have experienced that, uh, stuffness and indigestion, and even then psychically found themselves overwhelmed and confused uh, as, a, as a function of, you know, indulging almost in a hypomanic state of, oh my gosh, and then all of a sudden finding yourself having consumed so much different variety without participating the, in the meal so that the metabolism is cumulative rather than overloading and then uh, capturing the stuckness of the felt sense of being that can't then be metabolized and then being like, now what? I can't even appreciate anything anymore because I have no way to metabolize what it is that I'm actually encountering. I have the sense that it's good, but I'm now done and I'm tapped out. I've talked to a couple of uh, young men in particular who were feeding Mm. off of this, who actually encountered that process. And I coached them through a little bit in my own uh, way. Um, I feel super fortunate in my own space uh, because, um, you know, my journey is building an architecture. So I, I, you know, I build an underlying architecture uh, that, so I already had this backdrop cathedral to suck up, you know, so if I'm going to go drop into quantum mechanics and, you know, metabolize what's happening in that literature, I already have a, a spectralizing frame for sucking that literature up and placing it in particular categories. And I can then drop that. And I spent half the day on Jewish mysticism because John hooked me into Xavier Slavin. I hope I'm oh, yes, his name. Yes. All right. And yes. I, I spent three hours with him today earlier. And then I re- listened. Yes, yeah, beautiful. Um, you know, and then what is that world? And fundamentally, how do I understand that world? And um, again, though, I'm lucky, uh, fortunate, except whatever, having an architecture that allows me to assimilate, integrate, categorize, affords me an opportunity to eat pretty voraciously off the buffet without getting massive indigestion and backup. Um, But that has a lot to do with understanding the or an architecture that allows you to assimilate and integrate key ideas and harmonize them so that you get music rather than just, oh my God, that's an idea. And oh my God, that's an idea. But if you can't discern how to place that idea in relation, the system will get overloaded and you will find yourself, uh, well, stuck with a meal you can't digest. That's right. Well, that's right. Well put. Well put. No, that makes a lot of sense that you come in with a certain structure that constrains the number of ways in which the new information for lack of a better word can be signified to you. Yep. And, um, and that makes a lot of sense. And I think that is precisely the thing that a lot of people coming in, um, part of it's generational people coming in who are younger, but also people are coming in without the same, um, the same training, um, and the same, um, I suppose the same set of, of axioms within which to work would be much more suggestible and therefore much more uh, uh, susceptible to being overwhelmed. Um, the, yeah, framing it in terms of metabolism, that's very helpful. That's very helpful. Mm. Yeah, and, and I do feel, you know, I do, I do have a very ingrained architecture that sorts the various nutrients <laughs> and allows me to metabolize them in process that's energizing as opposed to uh, overwhelming. So that's a, 
that, that, that I, that's why I'm a pig and shit. In this I'm a happy camper, but that's, I'm not a, you know, the, what you describe is not an uncommon phenomenon as I encounter people, you know, definitely. Let me ask you, Greg, have you, I mean, there have been, there's so, there's been so much obvious confluence between your, your metapsychological architecture that you've brought to all of this and, and the tree of knowledge and, and all of your painstaking work over the course of time to elaborate and articulate it out to be as expansive as possible um, without perhaps superseding a reasonable boundary within which you can actually develop the typologies you've developed have has and so to me that makes that makes you very very that makes you and your system very very adaptive and 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 very able to assimilate interdisciplinary encounters in the way that you have and you seem you, that that seems to be a skill of yours is that you're able to take encounters with different disciplines and rather than them being apparetic to your own discipline and to your own training you're able to somehow convert them into the chosen vocabulary with which you work and 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 fasten them into place to complement the work you've already done and perhaps to to add to the to add to the to the depth and resonance of certain terms that you're already working with, so that that much is very apparent to me, not least because of the series that we just finished doing. But I'm wondering, conversely, whether you've encountered anything in the course of these last months or couple of years in this vast digital mm-hmm. forum that has threatened to to challenge you perhaps a little bit more that has perhaps threatened to challenge you with some indigestion sure. and that has perhaps threatened to, to that has, that has, that has uh, shaken some of the foundations of your work that you've, that you've ported to it. Um, I, I assume nothing that ha- nothing like that has happened so comprehensively as to undermine your project, of course, but, <laughs> but, but I, but I, you, but I think you're someone who has a, who would have a dialectical appreciation for that. And I'm wondering if it's happened to you recently. Yeah. Well, so here's the, um, well, uh, absolutely. Yes, there's certainly, there are particular kinds of ideas uh, that to the extent that they would get metaphysical and ontological traction, they would then result in a appropriate threat to the onto-epistemological architecture that I've constructed because they would then challenge foundational aspects. And it is a, the system, at one point I characterize it, and I think this is a bit erroneous depending on the meaning of the term foundational, but I I argued it is a foundational system. It certainly has a very clear logical structure to it. Um, It is dependent upon the Big Bang. It's dependent upon the cosmic evolutionary processes in particular ways. Okay. Um, so for example, I got for a while, I definitely got interested in parapsychology. Okay. Uh, and wanted to really be clear about where, because I got convinced very much the way the world is going through aliens right now, mm-hmm. I encountered parapsychology in a way that was, con- I thought it was just BS. And then I encountered it in a particular way that was like, wait, you can't just call it BS. Okay. Mm. Uh, and there is enough data in the parapsychology world to be very head scratching in my opinion. Okay. Uh, and there, there certainly is an empirical lineage on Gonsfield experiments and other kinds of things that just are not amenable to simplistic hand waving from an empiricist skeptical point of view that says this is bullshit. Okay. There's something there. 
the at an at a anecdotal experimental narrative that's very akin to like Tic Tac and the aliens that that are, you know, like, so the analogy is, is like, okay, yeah, people say, oh, there's aliens, there's nobody in the fucking aliens. And then you're like, well, what the hell is this thing that's on radar that advanced pilots are seeing that nobody can detect? And then they bring back and they study and they have to come out and say, it's not us, right? Um, and then maybe it's the Chinese or the Russians, but how the hell do they have technology that doesn't conform to inertial laws? Nobody has any frame of reference for what that would be. Maybe it's a hologram, but that's weird. Okay, so now you have this whole narrative, this anecdotal data evidence thing that affords no readily clear explanation. And, and I would argue there's parapsychology lines of research that are very similar. Okay, um, and I would argue, you know, people have near death experiences, people have other kinds of, they speak to higher dimensions of reality, all right, that, that open up windows on, on aspects of what I'm doing that would then say, yeah, well, clearly it's incomplete and maybe fundamentally wrong. Okay, um, so those are the kinds of things that would then, uh, you know, sort of potentially threaten. And if there was a clear metaphysical, ontological line of cumulative explanation that I could follow and see, now some of them may be very consistent. Yeah, certainly the idea of aliens is not inconsistent with the tree of knowledge. Um, the idea of a really strong cosmic consciousness that we plap into, whereby our brains are more uh, radar than they are actually mediating consciousness. Yeah, that's different. That's a different metaphysics and a different model of psychology. And my system would be uh, much more re regulated to heuristic utility, but not really the real game if that turns out to be the case. Right. Okay? Uh, so I've encountered these kinds of elements. I've been, I'm, I'm an academic trained in my own skepticism. I'm a clinician that knows I'm a bullshitter that has ego jo egoic justification to know that I'm right. I mean, that's cognitive dissonance 101. I study and teach that. So I, I know I'm vulnerable to it. And my commitment, very much like John, is a commitment to uncovering self-deception, being aware of my own justificatory state of being and find stuff that threatens. That's, a, that's what you, uh, to me, that's what a serious academic does. And my honest conclusion in each one of those things is that they're powerful pieces of evidence, but no metaphysical ontological clarity behind the evidence that actually affords you something that you can land on that, if, that goes beyond sort of agnostic curiosity about the incidents. And there's no causal real explanation that can be generated that fits with anything that allows me to make sense out of it. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, so it's, it's just sort of like, so like my brother, youngest brother, he went through an alien transformation, you know, went from no way to, Oh my God. And now he's a, he's very convinced that they're real, that aliens have visited us and hung out and, you know, he's a believer. Mm -hmm. um, and I respect that. But as I point out to him, every narrative that he gives, like the, you know, the United States has access, we're in contact with a galactic interfederation of, of other aliens, you know, that, that explanatory narrative that then now accounts for this is a very weak and filled with all sorts of speculation, okay? Right. Uh, so now you've filled in, you have your empirical thing, and now you've generated a backdrop story that's unbelievably rich, but has huge numbers of things that we don't know. From a scientific skepticism perspective, you're adding huge jumps uh, in relation. Um, so I think the same is true of the ESP and the entire sci-phenomena 
world. I think that it's fascinating to find some of those, but they can't nail it down. You can't bring it in. It's not like there is an alien ship right in front of us that everyone agrees is an alien ship. Um, there are things that are tantalizing, but not enough. Uh, so what have I done? Basically, my response to these kinds of things as well, I now occasionally, uh, I saw Sean uh, Habermas, I'm maybe getting this wrong, uh, but he's an integral theorist who did exonatural studies Okay, believed in a you know he yeah, he was on integral stage and he um, uh, on talking about his own uh, experience with aliens, his own vision about what what he called exonatural studies. Okay, um, and you know basically opened up this whole layer that I would say I was agnostic about, and it was very helpful because it essentially allowed me to draw a circle. Okay, on all the shit that may be real, and I'm open to. And if it was actually real, would require a fundamental upgrade in our naturalistic understanding. But I'm also of the opinion that each one of those things is anecdotally interesting, but there is no clear architecture behind it. So it's just you, you get the window and then you see it, but you don't know what's behind it and you can't make strong claims. So you then stay there. So then I'm like, well, what really am I trying to do? I am working on the endo-naturalistic philosophy. No, no, I'm, I'm not... I am interested in understanding this conversation, which is replicable. You know, it's like, well, I'm justifying my narrative to you. I'm tracking yourself. We're engaged in the dynamic verbal and nonverbal behavioral patterns. And we can take any Zoom conversation and begin to apply and we can replicate that. We can understand that. So I'm definitely, you know, the tree of knowledge is either onto a better ontological map or at the very least is not a bad heuristic. Right. Oh, you know, so that's, you know, I'm like, hey, there may be all this other stuff out there. And if they and if it requires a fundamental upgrade, you know, a big bang all of a sudden ends up bad as a bad idea. You know, the system takes a serious hit. So there certainly are these potentials. Um, you know, my basic experiences in, you know, I'm stoned one night in 1997. I draw out this diagram. Every cell in my body is like, oh, my God, this is a formula for decoding the world. In the last 20 years, I've been assimilating and integrating naturalistic facts that are in accordance with this schema. And so I'm like, well, I'm, I'm happy with it. This is the cumulative knowledge coherence uh, system that I was seeking for me making sense out of the world that's qualitatively better, at least than what's going on in psych 101 classes, where right. people are you know, basically just pretending like they understand shit and then just handing them concepts that overlap and are completely chaotic. Right. So that's a long-winded answer. Basically, there are certainly some things that threaten. I tend to those. I haven't found anything that fundamentally is confirmable that undermines the system. I'm open to that. I've, I've used that to actually be clear about what actually is the system really shining our light on. It's a natural philosophy. That's really right. that's right. That's exactly what it is. Right, and very pragmatic by the sounds of it, in the in the in the commonplace and in the technical sense. Um, yeah, to put it sort of to, to put it. Simply, by the sounds of it, what, what you're doing is you're dedicating your attention to making sure that the integrity of the existing structure is maintained properly in an integrative way. However, you're keeping the windows open. Exactly. Beautifully. Yeah, I, that would be the easy way to say it. I, I had to jump a lot of academic jargon, but I appreciate you summarizing. No, no. I, well, I needed the <laughs> jargon to extract the simplicity from it, but that's, that's, that's how I'm seeing it. I mean, and it's interesting what you say about the... This is something that I've, I've, I've thought quite a bit about as well, that the, the, the distinction, and sometimes it's a very, 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 very fine line, the distinction between what I might call a very um, 
a very attentive Socratic ignorance um, to the, the, the possibility that, that the uh, descriptive structures of the world are flouted by, anom by anomalies that gesture to a depth beyond them, mm -hmm. which I find no difficulty believing and committing to, and the substitution of an alternate meta-narrative, which mm -hmm. to me is, is a leap, um, is, is a leap that actually changes the category of the speculation, right? Nice. Yep. Right. I mean, there, there's more in heaven and earth, Horatio, than is dreamt of in your philosophy, right? That is a deeply, deeply Socratic, that's deeply consonant with a, with a self-conscious Socratic ignorance and an ironical one at that. And that to me is a, is a, is a perspectival position that has implicit integrity, but that position, strangely enough, I mean, it's a category mistake and these things happen all the time. So maybe it's not so strange, but that position has becomes in our culture becomes conflated with a position that seeks to supersede whatever the accepted narrative is for an alternative that usually has as little integrity of, as the one that preceded it, maybe less, maybe more, but usually about the same, I think. Right. And it's, and it's, it's, it is the, it is that distinction is precisely the point of tension that I bump up against often in the world when talking to people, because I, I get quite, I get quite enthusiastic and giddy as many people do about parapsychological phenomenon. And mm -hmm. uh, my, my, uh, my, my father growing up passed on, you know, an, an incredible tradition of ghost stories to me. And I'm ah. still enthralled with, I'm really quite enthralled with the concept of ghosts at every level of resolution. Right. Mm -hmm. And I still find it to be an absolutely fascinating topic for contemplation and even for study. And there's a lot of good work that's been done on the matter, you know, from a, to, to, to understand what is, what is meant by that concept and all of its philosophical and indeed theological implications and all of that. But point is that I too have, 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 I'm, I'm disposed to enjoy and be deeply interested in that kind of, um, speculation for lack of a better word. And yet I find I, I balk a little bit at when, when that, when that becomes, when that kind of, um, that, that genuine interest, right. The interest in the anomalous encounter in the apparatic encounter ceases to be apparatic as oh. soon as a narrative is uh -huh. projected to assimilate it and yep. to cohere it and to wholly integrate it into the world. And as soon as it becomes something of the world in a codified fashion, even fit retrofitted with its own taxonomies and typologies and whatnot, it loses to me the apparatic value on the basis of which it is desirable in the first place, or if Beautiful. not desirable, at least appreciable, right? right? Right, total. And so I always think it's such a shame when the numinous encounter with something ghostly mm -hmm. is there's a haste, and I understand the haste. There's deep reasons for this, obviously. You could exposit them better than I could, I'm sure. But there are deep reasons to assimilate such encounters and to, to reverse engineer them into a narrative framing. But to me, their great function is precisely that they remain... Uh, uh, um, outside the frame of the narrative love it and and that is to me their their that is their power of intervention that there's there's i mean a topos ought to be a topos right yep 
No, that, I love that framing. By the way, I, I, that's exactly, to me, if we're doing sort of science to spirituality bridging, it would be the psychological capacity to appreciate what you just said and to embody that, I think, is very much uh, connected uh, to the sort of proper balance of awe, of appreciation, of anecdote, of appreciation, of mystery, of appreciation of the horizon, of possibility. Um, and I mean that in the you know, sort of traditional mystical sense of the possibilities of the universe and its endlessness and, 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 and confusion, and almost certainly the narrowness with which our particular conservative, scientific, you know, uh, metaphysic ontological structures afford us to understand that. And to me, to hold that, and then, at the same time to when they flip and then you think you start to explain it as if it's in parallel to the architecture of understanding the scientific worldview built around itself. You know, the, the pieces of genuine systematic intersubjective, empirical, reliable, discoverable phenomena that then, oh, well, now I'm going to then, like my brother, now I'm going to then start narrating about what the hell, how aliens are hanging out with each other. It's like, you're so far away from the phenomenon now of what, you know, and now you, your need to have a justified narrative has now taken over and you've lost touch with what it is that really, and it is the in the, the, the suspension of a grounded natural philosophy on the one hand with the mystery of possibility and relation that to me is really the cusp of the balancing apex point that affords us the right orientation in the world. That's right. That's right. That's right. Why would you want to tame that which which declines to be tamed, right? And why would you why would you ruin the great irony of being, which is that what is real and true is not the same as what is prehensible. And um, and to me, it, it does such a yeah. Well, you said it very well. It does a, such a disservice to the entire enterprise of appreciating, in both senses of the term, appreciate the the import of such encounters. Why why make them? Why reduce them so? It, it, um, um, but, but like I say, those two, those two, those two, um, those two positions, those two, uh, they're not really even, well, one is, is, is not even a position per se. It, it, it doesn't use propositions to fortify itself, but those two vantages and, you know, from which to, to, um, to witness the world and its emergence. Uh, are unduly conflated very often, where you know the the, the skepticism of Socratic ignorance um, is becomes or converts itself somehow into simply an alternative, right? right? That could just as easily be supplanted by the same Socratic ignorance if it maintained its presence and continuity, right? <laughs> and um, and it's where it's certainly where I bump up against, you know, right. I, I, mean, I, 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 it, it's certainly where I find that, that, that my um, perspective ends and others begin where the, where the, the, the genuine love of the aporia uh, becomes the, becomes the positing of a new world in which the aporia is no longer an aporia. Mm, beautiful. Actually, that, uh, that opens up something I definitely wanted to touch on. And uh, we haven't, I haven't heard enough of your story, the story about, of, of how you got to be uh, where in this space and in the worldview and your, your narrative. So I'd really like this to take a little while and, you know, 
kind of you talked about your dad, you know, and and embodying that, and that gave me a little window into your past, and it's like, yeah, no, I want to. I want to know you better, brother. So uh, can sure, you tell me yeah. a little bit about your about the story that brings you uh, here in this crazy world? Sure. Yeah. It, it's a it's a it's an interesting question, eh? Because so much of um, the bi- my like my biography, so to speak, is is very is very unadorned, and it's the the fact of it being so unadorned is one of the things that has 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 interested me in it in it as a phenomenon and has interested me in its limitations its explanatory limitations mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i my, my i mean my hmm, my particular set of interests and dedications as they may be are not sufficiently justified by any narrative or any biography mm-hmm. that I that I could deduce to explain them. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, so you know, I I I grew up uh, I grew up in a in, so you know I grew up in a family that was that was that was that was religious in a very nominal sense, was Catholic okay. in a nominal sense, mm-hmm. and um, and that was both a that was that was probably a lot more significant than I ever gave it credit for in in, in the immediate aftermath, mm. Mm. Um, because it what it did do is it habituated it habituated the presence of such mm-hmm. a thing for one okay. thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It um, it engineered a very basic degree of of biblical literacy, not enough, mm. but some, <laughs> and um, and and it naturalized the notion of the transcendent. Mm. into the everyday mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that even when, you know, I came to a certain age where I decided as a lot of people do to be as, you know, derisive and irreverent as I possibly could <laughs> towards the, the churchly upbringing. Mm-hmm. And like I say, mm-hmm. it wasn't all that churchly, but it was, right. it was, it was, it was really Catholic in the most common sense, right? Catholics uh-huh. are <laughs> famous for, you know, going to church twice a year and, um, and, you know, and but but it's it was a far more cultural Catholicism than mm-hmm. it was a pious Catholicism, and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that's in part because of the cultural background it came from. Right. Um, but there was enough of that so that the notion, attention to the transcendent, survived all of the irreverence mm. that um, that I that I levied at mm-hmm. the that I levied at the at the at the. Um, at the, at the conventions of the church when that time came. And so that appreciation survived a period of, of, you know, rebellion precisely right. because it had been naturalized into character as opposed to naturalized into a system mm. of propositional thinking. Right. And of course mm. I since over the course of time have realized that that is its function mm-hmm. properly and right. uh, and that the propositional thinking or that which corresponds to the to the doctrinal and the dogmatic and i'm not saying that those don't have important functions or that they're sort of epiphenomenal and inconsequential mm-hmm. that's not what i mean but what i mean is that the the real the 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 synosure of the work the characterological work was mm-hmm. done well mm-hmm. i would say and was done properly mm-hmm. and all i needed was an index for mm-hmm. that notion an right. index that would continue to appreciate such a thing, even as it became costumed in different mm. disguises over the mm. course of time. 
Mm. Right. Anyway, so yeah, so I was raised with a religious background that appreciated when um, when I would say I was able to return to it, having gotten all of the sort of the <laughs> the piss and vinegar out of my system, so to speak, about <laughs> it, and and return to it with a capacity to actually understand what that project is about. Um, mm -hmm. Not not that not that. Not that I've reached an endpoint to that or will ever, but, um, but so there was, yeah, so there was enough, there was enough enculturation of that early enough. And, and, and there was an interesting kind of dialectic to it as well, because I grew up in a family that sort of half of it was, was very attentive to the, to the, to the ritual and to the conventions, right. Uh -huh, to the, to the, uh -huh. to the, to the, um, to all of those customs that comprise, whether it be a liturgy or whether it be, you know, the, the sacraments within the church or whether it be the, pro the practice of prayer or the practice of worship. I had enough of that kind of dotted along the line so that um, I had some practical referent or mm -hmm. reminder for it. But I also had you know, and these are sort of represented in, in some ways by my, by my two parents, right? One was, mm. was, one was very attentive to, to the exercise, the exercises of, of prayer, the exercises mm -hmm. of worship, the exercises mm -hmm. of reminding oneself that one actually belonged to mm. um, a, a, that 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 one's life was not simply one's own. Yeah. You know what I mean? Okay. You were and part of you, a larger and, communal. Yeah, and that's yeah, and that's right. And that you were that I was beholden to dependencies. Beholden to that. Mm. Beholden to dependencies that uh, that that had to be that had to be regarded and had to be respected, um, because um, because it simply wasn't all up to me. That that's a really key thing. I think it's unfortunately something that I've lost a little bit over the course mm. of time. That will eventually I'm going to have to reel in again. But mm. this idea of the necessity of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's necessary because it's ritual, because it's mm. tradition, because it's it's what we do, right? Right. It's what we do, and it's funny, you know. Mm. That is because it's what we do was precisely, and as it always is when a person goes through adolescence, is usually the object of the irreverence. It's usually the object of the disdain. The, That's the, the individualization. Who the says? Pre the, presented, <laughs> the presented necessity becomes the object of rebellion, and, and I was no different. But I have since appreciated that it was presented as an unjustified necessity. I, unjustified necessities are really important. Mm. And, um, and I could never have appreciated the importance of an unjustified necessity for the one thing. And then on the other hand, to its dialectical opponent mm. was, uh, who, that was more my father, what was mm -hmm. this more, almost a more pantheistic mm. or, or, or panpsychic view mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. of the cosmos that kind mm -hmm. of eschewed some of the strictures mm -hmm. of the formal cosmology, let's say of, of Christianity, uh, and, and, and had, a, and had a, and, and was much more in love with the apparatic, much more in love with the ghostly mm. and, uh, much was much more interested in loosening the restraints of convention in order to open the window a little mm -hmm. bit wider for instance. Mm. Right. And so those two opponents, I think were, were deeply, though I didn't realize it for many years, were deeply complementary and kind of, um, 
you know, basically equipped me with, with, with a great deal. I mean, there was something very, there was something very helpful that came out of it and also Mm -hmm. something of of a great struggle that came out of that because Mm -hmm. it was, it, um, I, I was, I, I inherited a great deal of ambivalence Mm -hmm. and, and I still, I still, I'm, I'm still a, a person still of great, I'm yeah, I'm still a person of great alternation. I forbear from a lot of metaphysical commitments, mm. uh, precisely because they are, they, they are, they are very competitive within me. They are very competitive within me. Okay. And I, and I don't have a great talent for comprehensive systematic thinking precisely because I very much feel I am a center of tension of competing forces and influences, each of which on their own day can be incredibly persuasive. Uh Now, fortunately there is enough harmonization of there's enough characterological harmonization. There's Uh enough harmonization of, of, um, there's enough normative harmony, I should mm-hmm. say, mm-hmm. between those dialectical opponents to create something that is at least has a certain amount of, of, of let's say, ontological continuity and existential mm-hmm. continuity. But I do find that the thing, the, 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 the quality that characterizes my relationship with philosophy and with theology, for that matter, and all of their children Mm-hmm. is um is one of deep deep ambivalence mm-hmm. and you know it's interesting on a on a bad day that that ambivalence is completely sundering mm. and on a good day on a good day the, the 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 taut tension in that ambivalence is uh very fertile and is a source of great um a very and very generative um um you know possibility and and insight and love and creation um and so yeah so so anyway and so i that that ambivalence for me persisted um i i went uh, i went to the university of toronto which is where i met john and that ambival- and that ambivalence was running through me all the while and one of the things that in meeting john and i had i had I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't make it seem as though John was the only good instructor I ever had. That's certainly not the case. I had others that were, that were deeply influential for me, but they were more sparing than they should have been. And, um, and one of the things that in immediately, uh, um, the, the, the immediate affinity that I felt when I met John and, um, and became his student was that, for he was also victim to that ambivalence. Yeah. <laughs> now John. Now, now he had. He had. He John has resolved that ambivalence. Right. Uh, a great but, but he, but a he great, carries the affective memories. He of does. He carry, You're clear. absolutely right. He carries the affective. That very well said, Greg. Carries the affective memory of that ambivalence, and 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 it's still present. It's not simply a thing of the past. I think for him. Um, I, I hope he wouldn't mind me saying that. I don't think he would. I think he has um, announced that on a couple of different yeah, podcasts, yeah. so that I consider that public. Um, and you know, the, and that. And that was the thing that 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 was the thing that I I that endeared me so to him is that he was at once a, a scientifically minded, highly highly rigorous, uh, a scholarly thinker, and yet had a deeply deeply religious nature, a deeply spiritual nature, yes. and um, and that was you know now I'm I'm not certainly don't have the 
the scientific aptitude or interest that he has, but the, amb- the affect of the ambivalence was very similar. And I was deeply admiring and quite enthralled actually at the way that he had resolved his ambivalence toward his own religious background and managed to somehow, and I think still think it's quite miraculous that he was able to do this, um, that he had rekindled and rediscovered a deep and abiding love for its project in spite of the fact that it had been so dissatisfying in so many ways. And that comp, that combination was a was a very very powerful affinity to to put to put aside you know the just the fantastic pedagogy and all that but that affectively and socially right in terms of what he would embody for you right. in relation that's right that's right that's right so that you know that amb- and that that ambivalence is something that's really um, it that is characteristic of the, the the way I approach this arena, the way I approach my own thinking, the way I approach the thinking of other people, um, and like I say, it has it has very it it has it has it has there are vi- there's a vice to it, and the vice the vice is a certain is a certain um, is a kind of non-committal refrain. And, and that's not always a good thing, but the virtue of it perhaps is that is a persistent openness and, and a, a rather, um, a rather almost aesthetic, um, uh, a palette for the possibility of looking at the cosmos Mm. in in a variety of different ways right mm-hmm. down to the experience of the individual and i and and one thing that i think i enjoy doing um sometimes at my own peril is to is to carry or keep in mind or in carriage n- conflicting or or uh, or you know disharmonious possibilities uh-huh. at one time right uh-huh. um so what, what about your intellectual flowering? I experience you uh, in a unique way. Your capacity for eloquence and prose and the depth with which you are able to relate to people, empathize, narrate, weave synergistic con- concepts together, and then articulate them in the here and now is just beautiful. You know, and 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 I'm curious as to what if if that that experience of having that capacity at such a high level um how do you kind of experience the world in relationship to that or how does the world experience you in relationship to that uh unique feature oh well thank thank that's very kind of you greg thank you um that's a good question i well it's definitely i think i think what it i think what it where it, it It has something to do with, if 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 I am to accept your premise, <laughs> we can accept the premise. I appreciate the hesitancy because you're, you're humble, but I gave you the premise. If, if and I am to, you can look I, at the comments of from Guy Senstock in the little in the notes of, after of the session you lead, and we can get additional confirmatory analysis. Well, guys, my I'm buddy, saying. guys, my buddy now, so I can't rely on him to be. <laughs> well, involved. all right, I'm your buddy too, but but I'm also a clinician, and I've hung around a lot of smart people. I feel comfortable with my assessment. 
All right. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it in good faith and, uh, and, and not demure anymore. Um, so yeah, I, I think it has something to do with, the, with the combination of artistic and, and intellectual, um, uh, uh, impulses or, 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 you know, I, I think that I, I struggled quite a lot and still do when I was a student to reconcile attractions to both of those domains oh. to a domain that was overtly artistic mm -hmm. um and a domain that was overtly or exclusively intellectual now of course you know we know anyone who who who's who's cultivated some degree of, of integrity over the course of time knows that there's no essential contradiction between those things and that they can coexist and, and cohabitate but vocationally they they don't always cooperate with one another they don't always cooperate with one another. And so when I was a student, I was really torn mm. by those competing influences and mm -hmm. appetites and, uh, and found that I could become a, a, I could become a, a vessel upon which either domain could project onto me. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like I'm often the host of projections mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. both of those domains. Mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've been, you know, and it's, I suppose it's a, sometimes it's a, it's a rather luxurious problem to have, but it is a problem that I feel claimed in some ways by both of those domains and therefore have an exclusive home in, in neither, mm -hmm. which was always my, my, uh, my difficulty as a student was that I was a relatively homeless student. Mm -hmm. I kind of flitted from one thing to another, from one program to another, from one mm -hmm. department to another. Mm -hmm. Um, and, 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 I was never able to fully resolve into a consistent, harmonious structure the eclecticism of all of those competing interests. And I think in part because I could never decide whether my own temperament commended me to a more artistic life uh -huh. or whether it commended me to a more intellectually rigorous and scholarly life. And in many ways, that kind of schism the, the, the divorce of those cultures mm -hmm. does persist, I yeah. think, because uh, there's, you know, I do not, I mean, first of all, like I realized, I realized quite early on that I was not able, for instance, to devour uh, knowledge in the same way that, that other people were able to, right? You know, mm -hmm. um, now, obviously, <laughs> Be, being such a being having John as such a close friend has given me even a more radically disproportionate <laughs> view of such a thing because I think he devours things so voraciously that that most people couldn't keep up. But but even so, those those people that I knew and I knew many who were really committed to the scholarly mm -hmm. life mm -hmm. um, had a kind of drive to to mm. consume and 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 um, and digest as much mm -hmm. material as possible. And I was much more distractible. I was much more, mm -hmm. you know, I preferred to write more on any given day necessarily than I did to read, although it, you know, although it would alternate and change. And, and so i I always found that the kind of focus, the kind of dedicated focus and singularity of purpose and singularity of intent, that is almost kind of requisite. If you're mm -hmm. going to be able to espouse a deep and thorough expertise in any one domain, that focus, that singularity of purpose eluded me 
Yeah. Okay. And and does still elude me. Mm. And so that for me is that is that is the that is the tension. Mm. That is the tension for me is is having mm. a, a, a a temperament that likes to wander mm. and daydream. I, I do a lot of that. Mm. Um, you know, that likes to get lost in the interior in the interior life of possibility that wanders in imagination and likes to concoct structures in that interior life that mm-hmm. become uh, satisfying unto themselves, you know, mm-hmm. playfully satisfying unto themselves and trying to develop much more well-defined, much more, um, much more to, to develop faculties of greater specificity and faculties of greater discipline that can actually lend a more systematic structure mm. to the influences of the world right. and tame them and create from them mm-hmm. a scaffold upon which to climb and upon which mm. to build. Mm. And the, the kind of focal dedication required to do that is something that, um, mm-hmm. that, that is, 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 has always been, has always come within range and then drifted out of range within range. And out of range. Mm. Anyway. So, I, I, yeah, I digress. Yeah. No, yeah. no, that's, a, I mean, that's a, I, that helps uh, me. And I think just the, the narrative of who you are and what you bring. Uh, and so one of the things that, uh, that sort of defines the podcast, I'm going to throw out a uh, sort of, it's seeking a coherent naturalistic ontology uh, that seeks to revitalize the human soul and spirit in the 21st century. That's kind of the, that's the frame and so one of the things I wanted to ask you about is kind of like, I mean, you you hooked in with John and then you've sort of, you know, through John and then your own space, you've sort of watched some of the transformations that have taken place. Mm. Um, and and you also now embodies, you know, ambivalence and and depth and, you know, a science, spirituality, dialectic, you, you just articulated all of that. So when you look out kind of at the Kairos of the moment and the time between worlds what's your sense what what do you see as happening or what do you hope to happen what do you fear might happen where are you feeling um about this thing whatever this thing that emerging is yeah yeah that's a good question um So I think that the the huh, I, I look at it in in two. There's sort of two two ways I think of of, and they're not by any means mutually exclusive. But there are two um, arenas in which we can see this the meaning crisis playing itself out, and and the, the work I did with John initially, all of all of all of the work initially over the course of the first few years was was had everything to do with the meaning crisis and, mm-hmm. and articulating it out into its component parts, um, its component symptom, sym- symptomology. Mm. Um, and there is, of course, the kind of cultural uh, arena in which we can see the the loss of the, no longer having a kind of cosmic arbiter to mm. fasten, constrain, and ultimately frame the normativity of our experience. Mm-hmm. That now, in in the you know in in the grand 
and the articulation of the orders in the way that uh, that John and I framed them that that's not the only thing at stake the normativity there's there's the nomolot you know the 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 nomos of the world and and there's mm-hmm. the narrative order of the world but the normativity to me is is in many ways the one that that comes to mind first because it mm-hmm. has to do with what what we are to do with ourselves mm-hmm. and um and so no longer having a normativity that can effectively arbitrate and instill the presence of truth without without making that sense of truth unduly imminent to us mm-hmm. is i think the problem chiefly to me in that arena mm. which is to say that now we compete in our accounts for what should arbitrate the normativity of action mm-hmm. and um, all that means is that we cut ourselves up into into finer and finer and finer and finer and finer objects and continue to distend and lose our mm. sense of coherence mm. and and all of the everything having to do with the so-called culture wars and the the whole issue of political correctness and the, the rise of Peterson and everything that came from that. Right. Clearly, right. Is a, is a, is a, mm-hmm. is a, every, everything that has been decried on all sides of that, that um, phenomenon is makes it very clear that whatever it is that can consenter our normativity is, is completely um, uh, uh, dissipated. Mm. And, um, huh. and, and so that's sort of one domain. And then the other domain and the domain, I think that I take a lot more personal interest in is the domain of the interior life. Mm. Um, and that's, I mean, that's what, that's what brings me, that's what brought me to Kierkegaard for instance, huh. right? That's, huh. that's why people like him, uh, I think have a great deal to teach us at a time like this, because the cultivation of subjective experience is something that we increasingly uh, outsource. Mm. We outsource it. Now you know it's funny. There, there is a certain, there is a certain, um, there is a certain developmental utility, I should think, about outsourcing a certain amount of subjective accountability mm. to a culture. If that culture was actually effectively able to graduate and monitor and then eventually return us to ourselves. Right. So that's what, that's what we do as kids, right? (laughs) Kids, your, your accountability as an individual is, is outsourced to the necessity of your parent. And then at some point that accountability returns to you and whatever it, whatever that the narrative of childhood um, that, um, that ordered the cosmos very neatly. If, if you're, if you're lucky enough to have had a, a, a peaceful childhood, of course, mm-hmm. um, is revealed to be a, a, a kind of noble lie, right? It's mm-hmm. not true, but what it did is it it indexed attention to mm-hmm. what was ultimate and right. provisionally rendered in in such a way that it would be that you would be that your attention would be fastened to mm-hmm. the right objects in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. right? That's, I mean, that's why we tell lies. That's why we, we don't mind telling lies to kids because um, because the, the propositional content of the lie is actually serving as um, as a as a 
as a tool to fasten commitments to certain patterns of encounter, <laughs> patterns of behavior, right? Right. We it's know a, that this is what we do. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Right. This is what you do, right? Why? Well, because of this. And that's not really because of that, right? But that it becomes a way of scaling scaling the imperative to act in a certain way and scaling it in such a way that the reasons for it are digestible, but of course become increasingly untenable as you grow and you realize that, that you can't see the world in, in two dimensions. Mm. Um, anyway, so m m my point is that, that, you know, being able to outsource, you know, to being able to, to, uh, to loan out and then retrieve, your the the accountability uh, of of becoming yourself is something that only actually works, I think, if you have a cultural matrix that's actually cosmologically coherent enough to be able to actually return you to yourself at the end. If only we had such a thing. <laughs> if only we had such a thing, and that's precisely what we don't have we don't like because we we can't i i and this is this this becomes to me a source of great um mistrust in the world i do not trust i do not entrust myself to a community because i am afraid that if i entrust myself to that community that community will ultimately betray me mm. it will ultimately betray my capacity to become myself mm-hmm when the becoming of that self is ultimately um, um, must be must in its in its specificity in its singular actuality must actually be greater mm. than the sum of 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 um, traits that comprise that community, uh -huh. Uh -huh. right? Do and you see the seeds of that that potential community that would be up to that task? I, uh, I see no? only I see only seeds. I see only seeds. I'm I'm not yet. Um, I'm not yet. I mean, like this enterprise to me has a great deal of promise, and I'm I'm endeared to it, um, and it has already given me a great deal. But I am not yet at the point where I'm ready to invest. And again, everything I've just told you, you can sense that that's partly because sure. that seems to be my complexion. But <laughs> yep. it, part, part of that is my complexion. But I, I do, I can come up with some justifications for it as well, because sure. I don't yet trust that there is any, I mean, you know, it would, it would ideally be the church, but that is yet one other that I don't feel like I can outsource my sense right. of personal trust and accountability to, and trust that it will actually return me to myself at a crucial juncture. And that is also the way I feel about any number of nascent would be spiritual or religious communities mm. that are perfectly respectable and whose bona fides at face value, I, I commend and I trust. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think that something would indeed have to be, the, the call of one of those communities would have to be so singularly piercing, so, mm. so, 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 so trenchant, mm -hmm. so, um, so exact um, that uh, I, don't, I actually don't know what it would take. I don't know right. what it would take to have those affections won over, mm. right? To have that oh. trust won over. Mm -hmm. Because I still think that 
the response to the meaning, I mean, I've done, I've done work to this effect with John. Obviously there is some collect there. There has to be some collective manifestation of a response to the meaning crisis. If only as a consequence of the individual, mm-hmm. um, right? Obviously this has to operate at the level of culture. And, and, and I don't mean to say that individual life is the only level of resolution upon which this plays mm-hmm. out. Obviously that's not true, but I do think that I think that, 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 salvation as a possibility if i can mm-hmm. if i can pull in some overtly religious language salvation as a possibility i think is is within reach of the individual but i think is is i'm not sure that it is yet within reach of mm-hmm. the culture mm-hmm. i think that's going to take a great deal more time mm-hmm. i think that's going to take a great deal more time and so obviously there is a kind of there's a deep, deep interpenetration between the arena of the inner life, the individual's subjective experience, and the, 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 the cultural matrix in which things play out at a more macrocosmic scale. Obviously, sure. there's, they, 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 are, um, they, are, they are coextensive in some way, right? I'm enough of a Platonist to believe that there's, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a sense of nature, but I also think that, um, I, lo- I mean, I look out at the, I look out at the field of culture and I see that it has managed to vivisect itself mm. into so many, uh, uh, um, you know, there, there are so many appendages out there without a brain to cohere them. You know what I mean? And <laughs> yeah. there are so many, there are so many weltering limbs out there that are, that are grasping without knowing what they're grasping at. Uh, what an image. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and, to, and, and, and I don't, and I look out at them and I think I, I got to keep away from this. Yeah. I got to keep away from this. Right. Mm-hmm. And even when one emerges, that seems intelligible enough to be worthy of some trust um, I'm, I'm tempted to give that trust only provisionally mm. because I think that, um, because there's also a certain, there are, as you said before, there are egoic interests to those communities that also constrain their capacity to accommodate their opponents, Yep. right? That constrain their capacity to accommodate their component, their opponents. And, um, so in any case, so that, so the, the sort of the, the individual mm-hmm. arena is the one that, that eludes itself to me with, um, with, with beckons with a little bit more, right. right. Beckons with a little bit more promise than the cultural one to me yes. right now. Right. And, Cultivate the local garden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's Thank right. That. That's right. Because, you know, I do think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. And, um, and I, and I, I do, I have, I have it in me to believe that, um, I have it in me to believe that, that there is renewal here. I really do. I, I truly, truly do, but I don't know what we're going to have to go through in the meantime, before such a thing becomes capable of being an actuality, you know, and, right. um, yep. and I, and I, and I'm, and I'm reticent to prognosticate any more than that. Right. Because who knows? I mean, the, the last 18 months 
Like none of us saw that coming. And I think that what that did is it, I mean, this is, this is a pretty obvious thing to say. It exacerbated all of those things that were already rife through the symptomology of that meaning crisis uh, were exacerbated, right? One of the things that people realized, I think, and I don't exclude myself from this, is that we are untutored when it comes to cultivating the inner arena. We cannot keep our own company. We're just woefully, woefully ill-equipped to keep our own company. And because of that, we do, we, we offload more and more and more of that personal sense of presence, that personal accountability that has us recur on ourselves and wonder aloud at our own integrity. We offload more of that to, um, to, to the, to the, to the conventions of, of culture. And when we do that, then we simply abdicate what it means to be ourselves. Right. Hmm. And I think that's, that's becoming more true. Like, not less true. Uh, certainly, I would say that we're moving in the wrong direction as far as that goes in general. But I think you're making a very powerful point. And certainly um, the attention to the interior and the cultivation of the interior garden and the, both the capacity and the ability to do that is always, uh, well, for those that can reflect on it and understand what it would mean to cultivate that and be able to have that available to them is absolutely key. And it is certainly one of the things that I would encourage people to reflect on uh, deeply in relationship as they, as they position themselves in relationship to society, you know, there's local and global variations on which one would draw one's attention. And one is always present with oneself, you know, in that, and, and then to turn the attention there is always, I think a worthwhile, I don't think only, but always a worthwhile, uh, place to, you know, Jordan Peterson, clean your room uh, at whatever level of meaning that that affords. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that it's a, that doesn't, I mean, just because it's a, just because it, it's a reflexive exercise doesn't mean that it's a solitary exercise. Yeah. And I yeah. think that's, that's the key here, right? Like I, I don't mean for a second that we, we, we should be retreating into, into further into solitude and isolation as a means of interrogating our, our, our sense of our own presence. That's not it at all. Right. Um, I think that so, uh, there is a component of that project, I think that does require solitude, that does require the privacy of, of one's inner life. But by no means do I think that that's primarily uh, or exclusively the way to that project. I think in fact, the cultivation, like the fellowship, the cultivation of intimates is essential to that. For me, it has been essential to that project. Absolutely. There's, no, there's no way I would have been able to to, no, I, to grasp as many features of my own being were it not for the dedicated influences and feedback from people who are close to me. And I think that that, and every person I know who has undertaken that kind of project has also needed the same thing. Completely. Um, but I think that, but that's see, but that's also one of the challenges is that one of the things that that project I think requires is the presence of intimate, attentive fellows. Mm. And, and that's another thing that's very hard to come by right now, right? Because the art of sociability, and it is an art, it is something that you can do better or do worse, right? Mm -hmm. Just like conversation is something that you can do better and do worse. And some of the acuity and the training that goes into 
cultivating that skill, I think has attenuated over the course of time. I meet a lot of people, again, this is anecdotal, not statistical, Mm -hmm. but in my own life, I meet a lot of people, especially of my cohort, my generation, who do not have intimate, personal friends. They have people that they see you know, they have people that they see in by virtue of shared circumstance, yep. right? And that's valuable in and of itself, obviously, but it's valuable in a different way, right? Or they have like partners, you know, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, and 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 that's also valuable for its own reasons, but that's also not quite the same thing. And so there, I think that again, this is only anecdotal, but it is very, very pronounced in my experience is a paucity of those kinds of intimate friendships because the thing about intimate friendships is what they do is they 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 attend to you as you, they they attend to you singularly they oh. attend to you not in a categorical manner mm-hmm. right yep that's their great power is to be seen for your singular nature for your irreducible quality for better and for worse right and it both are both are necessary and i think that as the culture becomes more vivisected into its into its tribal parts and pieces the the basis of relating becomes the shared normativity that is speciated in each of those tribal parts mm-hmm. right i relate to this group on the basis that we have now this shared ideological way of regarding the world and it's on that basis that i relate to that group but if that's the basis on which i relate to people that has nothing to do with myself as an individual unique in any capacity it has nothing to do with me right yep and it has nothing to do with them. It is simply, uh, 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 you know, a, a particular apps, mm-hmm. asp under which we congregate. And when we refer to that as our identity, but of course, mm-hmm. as we know, that identity is ultimately fraudulent. And the only way to properly relate to it is to relate to it ironically, because it's, mm-hmm. we are precisely not reducible to it. Right? right. And so I think that those friend that, that level of relationship, mm. um, is a crucial cultural missing piece of the puzzle mm-hmm. that is absolutely necessary to mediate between the cultivation of the individual arena and all of its singularity and then the the, mm. the broader cultural arena in which these individuals cultivated bring themselves to bear and are able to identify with communities but simultaneously mm-hmm. and crucially disidentify with those communities at the very same time so that they don't become subsumed under um, preserve their individuation. That's right. Preserve exactly right to preserve their individuation. And I think that we have right now a situation of extremes. We have individuated individuals who cannot find them, who cannot find a place for themselves in the world because every place they see in the world is categorical. Mm. And they look out at the world and say, well, I can't, I can't participate in any of these groups because I don't see myself in the categorical way that they seem mm. to see themselves. It's a problem I have all the time, right? Mm-hmm. I look at all of these groups and they, they, you know, and I think I can't be part of that because I'm, I fundamentally don't understand myself to be that mm. and to the extent that I could participate in that. I would have to do so ironically. I would have to do so constantly reminded of the fact that I am not equivalent to the denominating identity that characterizes that way of being. Right. 
And I think what, so community for me, the necessity of community, the thing that would make community on a mass scale, much more livable has something to do with one that could, that could live in the tension of that mm. irony, mm. right? Mm -hmm. In which we could mm. be as a part, because we mm. do, right? As Tillich says, right? The, yep. the be as a part is deeply important, but in order to be as a part, we must understand ourselves mm -hmm. also simultaneously and dialectically as, as not as a part. Hmm. And and it's somehow it's somehow the of right the resolution of those resolution dia dialect. dialectical yep. opponents mm -hmm. that I think would be would would make such a thing viable. Hmm. And um and I don't know frankly what would make it viable for hmm. me or in general. I don't mm -hmm. know what would make it viable, but um but that's what it is right now to me. To me the 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 being as a part within the culture right now. Mm -hmm. is a non-starter precisely because all of it to me, not all of it, but you take my meaning, Greg, the vast <laughs> majority of it, yes. I'm not saying there aren't exceptions, but the vast majority of it is, is too categorical to be authentic. Mm. And that's a problem because uh -huh. I want to be as a part as much as anybody does. Right. And yet if I can't find an arena that will allow me to maintain the elasticity of identity required to continue to aspire, uh -huh. then I don't want any part of it at all, right? So this is the dilemma, my friend. As yes, far as I, I it. hear it. You are. It's you one articulated axis. it brilliantly. It's one <laughs> axis of the dilemma. Anyway, there's so many. There's there? a lot of different angles. We can specialize lots of different dilemmas. Of dilemmas. And I think we elucidated that one with a fair degree of uh, richness. And I do think it's a poignant condition. Uh, and and this idea of self in relationship to other self in relationship to culture, society, and the process by which that iterative feedback loop is conducive to fulfillment on both ends or sort of fragmented, categorical, deconstructive in relation and then alienating. And of course, I, I certainly see us, you know, uh, unfortunately leaning uh, toward the latter reality. Although I see, I do myself, I do see pockets certainly of uh, awakening. I, I think, you know, the response to the whole idea of a meaning crisis and that entering into our vocabulary and the ease with which that has been taken up and the notion that there is then uh, a diagnosis and awareness of that with a frame, you know, that has caught a particular angle of a subset and the idea that we would want a self-society system that affords much richer meaning, both in terms of our individuation and our participation in groups in various, you know, higher purposes. I think there's a calling for that. I think there's a seeking for that. And I think there's hope uh, that the seedlings that we are seeing may actually take root uh, and grow. Uh, but there's a hell of a lot of headwinds, uh, no doubt about that, and a lot of inertial force uh, that fractures and fragments. So uh, my mode, you know, in terms of vacillation is that I can activate the hope and optimism. <laughs> and at the same time, I have a pessimistic realism uh, side and I can I can do my John Verveke lens and then add one <laughs> and see the world uh, through both and aspectualize both those features with a high degree of uh, resolution. And uh, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. And, you know, it's not, it's not as though life is not completely gray, even in the midst of this, mm. this, this 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 you know 
Yeah, no, and at a, at a personal level, my own little experience over the last two years is of transformation. I mean, there's definitely been a, a transformation into a community uh, after banging my head up against the wall and getting in the inside the academy, thinking that the academy should be the place where this thing is seated. Um, and uh, then, you know, sort of losing that hope over the years in some ways and then being launched into a community where I don't know if it's seated, but I'm at least in Hank encountering John and equivalent kind of structures and ideas in the world that actually um, have, you know, I've certainly found my people in a particular way and have had a sense of fellowship in a way in the last two years of my own life uh, that I really hadn't had in the first, you know, 25 years of my journey into this uh, endeavor that I find myself in. Yeah. And that is but like, God, that is not not something to be underestimated. The power. No, of that. no, that, that's that's felt at multiple levels of yeah. my own, uh, you know, layered existence, and I feel it at each one, and I can speak to that at both when it's not there, and now to feel what you know enough of it to see the experience of that, and the harmonizing of that, and the potential of that. It's a, you know, I, I'm a happy camper, no doubt about yeah. that. Yeah, 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 and and I th I think it's also I. I, I agree. And I can, and I also content myself in, in a certain amount of uh, a certain amount of ignorance and a certain amount of, of, um, of, of belief in the absence of, of, of comprehension, you know, like this. I mean, I, I'm, ha despite all of my personal misgivings and, and, and mistrusts, I nevertheless am bringing myself to the table <laughs> and it, and there is, and there's something about it that does feel sometimes in spite of myself, sometimes in spite of the rational justificatory part of, of, um, of my, of my thinking, uh, it, there's something that feels intuitively right about it. Mm. Um, and I, and I'm, I'm willing to give myself over to the, to that intuition, mm. uh, even if there are reasons to, uh, to abstain. And then the tension mm -hmm. between that is, it seems to be, seems to be right. seems to be very important. Beautiful. Um, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, we're maybe coming to, you know, a, a po possible stopping point. Was there anything when you entered into this that is, were there any particular topics uh, that you were especially hoping to share or circle into uh, as we uh, enter today? That's a good question. I kind of had no idea, Greg. I, uh, I came in uh, thinking we would just figure it out as we went along and that's good. Thank you. I, I thought, I mean, I had some things I could have asked you if we needed fodder for conversation, mm -hmm. but I don't think we did. I think we were fine. Yeah. I think no, we were... I, re I really appreciate you sharing your story. And I really, I think you've embodied one of the great challenges of self and society in our particular cultural dilemma. Uh, and this is the fundamental question is whether we can build a rich and differentiated culture with all the smorgasbord of opportunities uh, that speaks uh, to the potential complexity of the individual lives and holds and honors them in a way that's reciprocally growth fulfilling. That's, uh, that's a one, uh, it's a beautiful dialectical aspect on the meaning crisis. And if we were able to solve it uh, or address it in a particular way that's healing or not. And I feel like you brought your experience around that tension uh, in a way that elucidates that uh, for, you know, just it really enlivens it uh, and, and embodies it and makes it, uh, affords it in a way that I think is uh, very meaningful in, in hearing that story and basically thinking about your sort of, I often talk about people's baton of energy information across, you know, and what is it that the, that the struggle or the opportunity or the tragedy and the way it presents itself. Uh, and I really appreciate the way you presented that. 
uh, and in that journey. It was uh, it was very very meaningful to me. Thank you, Greg. Thank you, Greg. It was to me too. And you, uh, you, you invited, you invited the confidence. And so I was, I was happy to, to talk to you on a little bit more of a, a little bit more of a personal level uh-huh. about these things. And I think in, in some ways, maybe that's, maybe that, that's the best I can do here is to offer up myself up as a, as a, as a, as a, as an embodied sample of these tensions. Cause I think in some ways that's what I am. I don't know how, how, I don't know what great theoretical contributions I'm going to be able to make in the direction of this problem, but perhaps one thing I can do is try and become as conscious a sample of these dilemmas as possible, uh, a thinking sample of these dilemmas and, and, and offer myself up uh, on, 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 uh, you know, to the altar of this problem in the hopes that um, in some modest way, perhaps it will, it will, it will contribute to the wisdom. If only, accident, if only accidentally. <laughs> no, I mean, <laughs> certainly from my vantage point, you know, these are, these are the dynamic interrelations that ultimately uh, we need to wrestle with. And by your virtue of narrating them, you bring them in high lived resolution. So I deeply appreciate that. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. All righty, friend. Well, thanks so much for uh, spending the hour and a half with me. I deeply enjoyed it as I knew I would. And also thanks so much for your uh, articulations in the elusive eye. I definitely, like I said, let me re-echo that that was meaningful and just, you know, uh, the, the intersection that I've had with so many interesting people. Uh, and I certainly count you among them uh, and, and the emerging fellowship uh, here. I deeply, deeply appreciate that. Thanks, Greg. I feel very fortunate, uh, very fortunate to have met you and uh, and to have developed this rapport with you. And I and I, I really hope to to carry it forward. So I feel I feel quite lucky. And thank you. Thanks for, yeah. Thanks thanks for being here with me. Thank you for the conversation. All right, man. All right. Well, take care, Fred. Okay, you too. All right.